Welcome to the 31st CineLit podcast. Today, we take a look at a small period in the career of Oscar-winning, Tony Award-winning, Golden Glow-winning and BAFTA-winning actor Walter Matthau. Best known for his appearances alongside Jack Lemmon, uh, for his work with Neil Simon, the playwright, for his appearances in Hello, Dolly, Charade, Grumpy Old Men, and of course, the inevitable sequel, Grumpier Old Men. But today we are focusing on a short period of Matto's career from 1973 to 1974, when he decided to become a crime film leading man. I am your host, Adam Marsh, and I am joined by CineLit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. And uh, I think we'll uh, we'll get the words lugubrious and uh, ha- and hangdog expression out of the way because yeah, uh, let's let's not go to that. Yeah, yeah, they're uh, you know when you mention Walter Walter Matthau, you know they're they're the sort of key descriptions. I think so. Uh, it's uh, something a little bit different for us. I think. Yeah, I mean, I suggested this a couple of weeks ago uh, that we should do something on these particular three films because I found it a unique thing that happens where, where it just suddenly overnight he went from doing light comedy type stuff yeah uh, being being the grumpy man in a, in a comedy you know playing the the, the, the cynical foil generally yeah. uh, and suddenly it went right i'm going to go and do three crime films and and fairly hard-boiled crime films oh they they are they are i was i was going to mention about 20 years ago uh, when when uh, robin williams uh, did pretty much the same thing he sort of approached his agent and said look i'm, I'm known as the sort of wacky uh, comic actor and um, and uh, even when he branched out you know in, and he was doing things like Fisher King and Awakenings and stuff like that you know these sort of bittersweet sort of melodrama type things that he was getting into films with a message sort of thing even then there'd always be a bit a little bit of shtick in there you know and he just said look I, I want to change my image and, and bang 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 one after the other did uh, one hour photo um, death to Smoochie and Insomnia and um, got into this much darker sort of realm which of course I suppose in in retrospect now we can look at that in another way in in terms of his life and his career but um, I can't think of many other actors who did that Matau did and that's what we're going to talk about today and I just wondered if you knew of any any other sort of examples of an actor doing that and just changing their image for this brief sort of two three year spell in their career not so much, not so much over a short period like what we're talking about today and what Robin Williams did. But I guess comedians in general tend to make their name as comedians and then immediately want to get out of the comedy film into a more more serious stuff. Yeah, they want to do Shakespeare or they want to they or they want to fire a gun. Exactly, they want to fire a gun. That's exactly what I was going to say. It was like, okay, I've done three comedies now. Pass me the pistols. We're going to go make an action film. And you think like Eddie Murphy, you know, moved into into action stuff with Beverly Hills Cop and things like that. And then Bruce Willis, I guess, um, started off doing light romantic comedies and, and then went into Die Hards and became the action guy, as we talked about on the Razzies. I'd say, I'd say, even in those examples, though, there's still an element of their, there's still this residue of their old careers, their old persona sort of comes through. They play the wisecracking cop, you know, they're, they're, they're shooting people, but there's, there's, it's, you can still see Eddie Murphy in there somewhere. You know? Well, I think, I think with Bruce, I think Bruce Willis is probably the closest, but I think it works in the other way around. I think Bruce Willis started off in comedies, but he really belonged in action films and he belonged in those kind of films. So just found his feet whereas Matto did did his, had his career did these three crime films and went oh, I'm going back to the other stuff now and yeah. and that was it you know it was just a little experiment which he was very good at yes yeah um I mean I think in the Matto films as we'll go on to talk about I think I think you do you do see slight elements and certainly the grumpiness is in there if, yeah. if 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 not if not so much of the comedy occasional little glances to camera and things like that you know but uh, by and large he sort of transformed himself and he's playing this sort of hard-boiled ruthless sort of figure in all three of these films and then as you say just just went back to being <laughs> being Walter Matthau once he'd finished and interestingly won an Oscar for Koch just before this period and won an Oscar for the Sunshine Boys just after, but the Academy didn't want to know about Walter with a gun, you know. Whereas the ba- the BAFTA awards did. We gave him a BAFTA for one of the films. 
Just think, just thinking on that with you saying about Oscars, it's kind of like Nicolas Cage when he won the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas and then immediately went and did like Con Air and Face Off and things like that, where he went from, yeah, I'm an award-winning actress showing the descent of a man killing himself through drinking to put the bunny back in the box kind of yeah, mode of yeah. Nicolas Cage, which if that had just been that, that would be fine. But Nicolas Cage's movie career went in all kinds of weird and wonderful and not so wonderful directions. After and, that. And, still, and still is. And still he? is. You yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. He's, he's extraordinary. Yeah, we need to talk about Nicholas. <laughs> we, need to, we need to talk about Nicholas. But yeah. uh, b- before we get on to these three films in, in, in depth, uh, I, think, I think it's worth mentioning as well how... Although they're they're all sort of crime movies and they all star Walter Matthau, they're all quite diverse. I mean, for for one thing, the the locations are completely different. We've got one that's set in New Mexico, although it was filmed uh, in a couple of towns in Nevada. And then we've got what I would say is one of the classic San Francisco movies and one of the real, real classic New York movies. So, yeah, it's interesting that, that there, there are these sort of differences in the film and strong differences in the characters yeah. that Matt Howe plays. Definitely with the characters. When you think about the characters in these movies, he plays like a, 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 a kind of like cynical police chief, police cop in um, The Laughing Policeman and follows that up with Charlie Varick where he plays a, a, a criminal, basically. He, yeah, he flips yeah. to the other side. Uh, and then he's a transit cop in... Um, him taking of Pelham one two three, yeah yeah. So you know, all fairly varied roles within a crime film world. You know, where do you want to start, Daryl? Well, I I'd, I'd suggest going through uh, in order of release. I think maybe Charlie Varick to start with, and okay. then uh, Laughing Policeman, and uh, and finish up with with the biggie Pelham. Okay, yes, yes, absolutely. So, so Charlie Varick, Charlie Varick's one of my faves, I must admit. Um, yeah. Don Siegel directed Hot, I guess, off uh, off of Dirty Harry. Yeah, well, he'd done this string of Clint Eastwood movies from, from the mid-60s onwards, uh, Coogan's Bluff, uh, The Beguile, Dirty Harry, uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah. So him and Clint were sort of like that, you know, and I, I understand this was actually planned as a project for Clint, which I, I can't quite see somehow. I, 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 it's the sort of film I could imagine Clint Eastwood directing, but not necessarily, I can't see him as a fit for Charlie Varick. He'd have been a very different character, I think. Um, and, and it's interesting that there's actually a line in, in the film where um, a scene where the character Molly, played by Joe Don Baker, arrives at um, the photographic studio that's run by uh, uh, Sherry North's character. And, um, and he, he says, I'm Molly. And she says, yeah, I didn't figure you for Clint Eastwood. So there's even this sort of little little reference to Clint in there. But, yeah, I mean, what, what, what do you think about that? Do you, do you think there could have been a version of this with Clint or, or would it just not have worked? It's funny, as I was watching it, it was crossing my mind whether, whether Walter Matthau was miscast in this role. He himself thought that he was. He didn't like the film. Right. See, because he does feel like, I mean, as much as I love it, he does feel like he is, I want to like Charlie Varick more than I actually do <laughs> in the movie. You know, it feels like, you know, in some ways you should be on the side of the lead characters, but they're criminals, yeah, yeah, so they robbed yeah. a bank. I think, I think with him, it's kind of that balancing line between likeable and ruthless. Yeah. Now, is is that you? What is that you wanting to like, Charlie? Yes, Barry? of course it or, is. <laughs> are you are you are you wanting to like Walter Matthau? Yeah. Are, are you are you struggling in adapting to this new persona? And that's what I was about to say. I mean, it, it was it was definitely me struggling to see Walter Matthau as 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 a fairly ruthless character. But as the movie went along and you kind of like, you kind of like lost yourself in in his portrayal, it was fine. You know, it wasn't a problem by the end of the movie. Uh, you know, it's totally bought, bought and sold. Yeah, I think that Seagull and the script handle it well because it, it starts off with him in disguise and um, the, the, the robbery of the small bank. It's not played for laps. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say that, but there's these, uh, these elements where, um, you know, there's disguises involved and there's sort of unexpected people inside the bank who uh, are sort of surprised to the... Um, uh, the staff working there and so on. So, yeah, it's got sort of the same beats as a comedy, 
all like what we're watching is is a, a, a sort of a violent bank robbery, you know. And, uh, and uh, before before we carry on, let's just let's just briefly summarize the plot because this is this is quite an interesting one. You, you generally you have bank heist movies. You have bank heists that go wrong. You have bank heists that go right. This is a bank heist that goes too right. <laughs> and that's the gimmick, isn't it? I mean, yeah, they rob yeah. a bank and there's way more money than they expected to yeah, be there. We've, we've got a, bu- a bunch of small-time crooks who, who unexpectedly hit it big, yeah. 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 And, and, <laughs> and, and then, then we go off into the realms of finding out why and why, why is this uh, tiny little bank in the middle of nowhere got all this cash so yeah, it uh, can't be good it can't yeah. be a good reason <laughs> yeah. yeah so um obviously that brings in obviously there's mafia money involved in that and they realize that they've robbed the mafia via this yeah, bank yeah yeah but we, we've got Matow involved and we've got uh, alongside him as his sidekick Matt is playing this sort of laid back sort of figure as you might imagine uh, an older um uh, sort of member of the gang the, the the sort of mastermind behind it all but he's got this, this younger gang alongside him a lot of whom get killed early on and he and he sort of largely left teamed up with um uh, one of don siegel's uh, uh, great stars of of uh, of his 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 recent films at the time um andy robinson from from dirty harry and again he's playing a real loose cannon here and uh, you know, very itchy trigger finger and everything, and uh, and it's a lovely contrast, I think, between the two. And it, it does bring out elements of, of of the sort of classic Mattel persona, even though he's he's fighting against that as an actor. And I think that makes his performance quite interesting. But the fact that he's he's all he almost is this sort of avuncular sort of figure, simply because the rest of his gang are younger than he is, and they're they're more likely to go off the deep end. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the good thing about his character is that he's he's trying to be that he's that he's that mastermind criminal kind of character, yeah. and he's trying to play everyone, and you can see him trying to play say the right things to the right people at the right times, those kind of things, which sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't in this in this movie, but um, particularly with the Andy Robinson character, he's definitely walking on eggshells trying <laughs> to handle the character, make sure that he doesn't go off the deep end. Definitely, and and then uh, then halfway through the movie, we we get another sort of shift in the drama when Molly enters yeah, the situation. Molly. How great is Joe Don Baker? As great as he always is. He know? really is. I mean, he's one of those actors that you just think. I don't know. I mean, it feels like he hasn't had enough credit. <laughs> he yeah. probably has. I don't know. But he just feels like people don't know how good he is. And if they I do know. know how good he is, they still don't know how good he is. Yeah. I think Joe Don Baker often seemed quite happy playing these sort of secondary roles. You know, he's had the occasional lead. Mm. Um, he was get, he was getting leads around this time, you know. But uh, um, but uh, I, I he always gives the impression of someone who's quite happy playing the sort of second stringer, knowing damn well that he's going to come in and stick the movie yeah which he, yeah. Which he, which he does <laughs> absolutely does yeah um no he's he's great as this sort of like i guess it's adversary he's the guy that the mafia have sent to track down the money you know and uh, you see him almost acting like the police like a police procedural you know he's, he's hunting hunting the money and following the the, the leads yeah, he's the guy knocking on doors and asking questions. Yeah, yeah. Um, although you know, much more sinister than than um, any movie policeman. You know. Yeah, a bit more violent as well. Yeah, I think. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, he is. He is. And uh, some of his stuff's not dated well. I mean, these are early seventies films we're talking about, so there are elements that we'll discuss where. Um, Molly's treatment of, of of women, for instance, is yeah, he's not the most enlightened of characters, is he? But he, not, you know, not he, at all, not at all. In but... in some ways, he is the villain. He is a villain. So oh yeah, so so it sort of goes with the territory, really. Yeah, I, I was saying earlier that interestingly, um, Matow didn't actually rate the film at all, and he's 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 been accused or was accused at the time of actually harming its box office because he um, he watched the film and um, he he said to Don Siegel. Um, the, the 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 quote was he said um, I've seen it three times I'm of slightly better than average intelligence I've got an IQ of 120 but I still don't quite understand what's going on is there a device that we can use to explain to people what they're seeing now is 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 that fair comment here I I'm I'm not sure it is I I, I understood it. 
Yeah, I, I followed it fairly straight yeah. from. I think sometimes there may be the motivation. I mean, sometimes you're not sure whether the character of Charlie Barrick has put his foot in it and made a mistake that's led the, the, the mafia to catch up with them or whether he's done it deliberately to, yeah. to, to ensnare them in, in his escape, his ultimate escape plan. Well, that all um, adds tone for me. You know, that, that's, yes, yeah. that's sort of in keeping with what these characters are and what the film's about. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think Matow was wrong on that. And um, it's, 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 it's fortunate in a way that he didn't completely abandon this experiment that he was on of playing, of getting involved in crime movies af- after the first one, because he obviously didn't enjoy it. And it's such a shame because he's, he, he's, he's terrific in it. And he was awarded the BAFTA that year. As, as best actor so uh, um, where he didn't get a nomination at the Academy Awards it was the year that um, uh, Jack Lemon won for Save the Tiger and it was a big field with like Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson uh, Pacino and Robert Redford so uh, and, and Matt Out didn't get a sniff there did, what, what, what do you think appealed to British critics and British audiences about this character that, may, that didn't quite grab the, the Americans? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just a sort of like maybe it's the years that go by and we 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 don't get movies like now and movies released in America released in Britain at the same time. Yeah, generally. Of course, it was usually nine months a year later. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. maybe we were just getting things like the French Connection and the French Connection Two, and we were still in that sort of like period where those crime films were still entering cinemas, and this would have been the next one. I mean, I'm 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 proposing a, a an idea here i don't know because i wasn't around then but it feels like maybe the wave of crime films that was happening in the early 70s was still in full flow in britain yeah at that time whereas in america maybe it was it was it was dying dying down a little bit i'd say you're right by about 73 74 i'd say that that's a good fit that is and and i, th- I think also maybe british film people be it critics or 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 punters or people in the business anyone watching this film over here i think we may have been slightly more conducive to the idea that an actor can shift from one thing to another and and that it wasn't odd that someone like walter matter was doing this why are we in britain more open to that daryl I, I think we we you were talking about comedians doing it earlier, and I think we've seen that over the years with our own sort of comic people, and and we're we're in a country where um, we we sort of celebrate people like uh, Tony Hancock and and the sort of. Uh, the tortured genius sort of thing. And and I, I think maybe Matow was, you know, the idea that he was shifting, because we people in Britain would have known him for comedy. We'd have known him for the odd couple and so on and um, at, at that point. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I just think it was a more accepted thing over here that people could move from type to type and... and do different types of material. And we, we we sort of celebrate that, whereas I think um, maybe in America it was seen as being a little bit unusual. Yeah, stay in your lane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. I mean, you, you wouldn't you wouldn't have Clint... You wouldn't necessarily have Clint Eastwood doing a comedy, although, of course, uh, five or six years later, he was doing them, so... Well, possibly, but he, he did, like... I mean, he did a, he did a musical. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That period, I guess so, so, yeah. You know, he was like... Okay. Um, okay, let's move, let's move on to the second film he made in 1973, then. Yeah. Uh, the Laughing Policeman. Interesting film, and adapted uh, from a novel by uh, Madge Hovell and Per Wallou, uh, two Swedish uh, writers, uh, husband and wife writers, uh, who brought the Martin Beck series, which this was part of, of. The name was changed when they made it in America. But they're well known for doing the Martin Beck novels, uh, which were a forerunner to the Scandi Noir stuff that we've been having over the last 15, 20 years over here. They were, you know, they they were the, the roots of that of that movement, the sort of like crime dramas. It was translated in 1970, so it was fairly fresh in the public's mind when it was adapted to the screen for 1973 by Stuart Rosenberg of Cool Hand Luke fame, and would later go on to do the Amityville Horror. So, you know, a fairly yeah, I mean, good name director. 
Rosenberg was sort of well known at the time for, for working with uh, Paul Newman. He, he'd done Cool Hand Luke and he'd done the WUSA, which Newman Newman regarded as the best film he ever made, and which wow. I, which is which is a film that I think you what you can watch uh, WUSA now, and it's almost set in in Trump world. You know, it's right. it's uh, uh, it's very much about sort of fake news and about um, uh, right wing politics and so on, and about how America's population can be manipulated. Manipulated, and New, Newman being being uh, heavily on on the left of politics loved playing that part apparently for Rosenberg. So again, you know, you, you you're thinking, why why is Walter Matthau in the Laughing Policeman and not Paul Newman? You know, not isn't Rosenberg trying to set up this sort of Scorsese De Niro or John Ford John Wayne sort of partnership with Newman? But no, we 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 get Matthau. The first thing I want to say about Laughing Policeman is uh, you were mentioning how it originates from the the sort of roots of Scandinavian noir, and you can see how this story would fit right into that, but. Don't they transmute it to San Francisco brilliantly? Isn't San Francisco used really, really well in this film? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, I mean that's that's the source material, but they are definitely drawing from um, from San Francisco as a location, black exploitation films as uh, as an influence, uh, particularly, French, yeah. and obviously that things like French Connection, uh, you know, loom large over this movie. I think yeah. in a big way. Now, the key thing about Laughing Policeman is that it's a police procedural movie. But I'd say with a slight difference, you were saying earlier on, Adam, that it sort of harks back a little bit to the hard-boiled sort of 1950s TV dramas. Yeah, it felt like an episode, a, a, a long, colourful episode of Dragnet with a bit more swearing and violence and casual yeah, racism. Yeah. But, but this wasn't something that had quite moved into movies yet, you know, and I, I think because of that, this film stands out because what you get is a police procedural but it's done so, so very realistically that it's almost like watching a documentary at times. And you've got your sort of buddy cop duo sort of things, but they keep shifting. You know, Bruce Dern, sometimes you see him working with Lou Gossett, sometimes you see him working with Matau. And um, you get these different pairs of, of, of cops going out and questioning people. And what we get to see in the movie is not just the plot line of the film, not just the story of the massacre that's taken place and, and why, why the police are investigating the reasons for that. But we see all the stuff that doesn't matter. We see them questioning suspects and questioning other people that are involved who can't tell them anything who, or who don't know or they reach a dead end or, or you know, they get they get a sort of loose thread, you know. And, and uh, but Rosenberg shows us all of this as though this is what a police operation is actually like. They don't always go straight to the person who knows everything. They don't always find the newspaper cutting that reveals exactly what they want. You know, they're, they're, they're often going down these sort of uh, blind alleys and, and yeah. we get to see all that here. Yeah, I mean, in that way, it definitely reminded definitely reminded me of like things like Dragnet, but also like at the time, uh, Edmund Bain's eighty seventh precinct novels were massive yeah, yeah. sellers, uh, and they were coming out one every every seven months or something like that. They were releasing those books, so I mean, the idea of a of a of a of a, a precinct or a, a collection of policemen being involved in one crime. Yeah, yeah. So you've got the two lead detectives, but it spins out to to involve other detectives in that in that precinct was was in there in part of the 87th precinct stuff yeah are, are you going to give a, a short praise of the plot here as well adam i think i think we should uh, just at least yeah. explain the, the start of the film and how it all kicks so so the, yeah this is it's a fairly it's a fairly basic plot in some ways um it starts off with a buzz driving through the streets of uh, of, of san francisco when a gun is turned on all the passengers and, and kills like 20 a whole buzzload of passengers are, uh, are murdered and the driver and the buzz crashes and they they turn up and one of the one of the passengers was an off-duty policeman who uh, was uh, on on annual leave as it were and he'd been investigating something off the books sort of thing so they start to investigate why he was on there and how and whether it was connected to the seemingly random um slaughter of all these people 
and he's he's Matthau's ex-partner and so he's Matthau's so, ex-partner and he gets paired up with a new partner to investigate this which is the uh, fresh-faced Bruce Dern <laughs> yeah yeah now we we could we can bring in semi lit favorite Roger Corman here yet again because Dern had come through the sort of counterculture movies of of Corman and was sort of known for working with Jack Nicholson into the early 70s and Nicholson's career had taken off post Corman Dern had completely stolen the show in uh, King of Marvin Gardens, acting alongside Jack. And um, this was just about his next film, I think, um, yeah. you know, or, or certainly the following year from that. So uh, uh, what do we think about Bruce Dern and Walter Matthau? Because I, I, I don't know much about what went on on set, but I sense from watching the film and looking at the body language and the way they sort of interact with each other, I wonder if there was a little bit of conflict there. Well, I think they're supposed to be. The characters are not supposed to get on, are they? No, they're, no. They're definitely, I mean, Walter Matthau is resistant to to being paired up with, with Bruce Dern's character, but... And not in a and not in a sort of like God damn it, don't give me another partner. I don't need another partner. <laughs> not in that classic eighties way where you know yeah, I, I work yeah. alone. You know yeah. he's more sort of like you know I'm I'm doing it, leave me alone kind of thing. Yeah, and 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 you can tell he's 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 got this sense of duty to his former partner. You know that he's got to be the guy that sort of finds out what's happening and why he's died, and he he sort of doesn't want interlopers coming in and 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 sort of getting involved. You know, it's a very personal thing for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I I think the guys play it so well. You know, they're often sort of turning their backs on each other, or it's just in the way they stand and the way they react to each other. Yeah, it could just be in the characters. I I. Got this They've got very different acting uh, backgrounds and styles, yeah, haven't yeah, they? They, yeah. they? You know, Walter Matto is very much sort of like uh, traditional Hollywood. You know, um, Bruce yeah. Dern's come up through the the Roger Corman. <laughs> Again, this. Isn't this absolutely of the times, though, that late 60s, early 70s period where you're getting your sort of Gregory Pecks and John Waynes and, and people like Matt Howe and Burt Lancaster and people acting alongside the young guns. And, and it's this fascinating period in Hollywood where you do get this crossover between old Hollywood and the new breed. Yeah, so I mean, I mean, a lot of things go into that, but ultimately it works for the characterization. You know, they're, they're not meant that their, their relationship is supposed to be uneasy. You know, it's supposed to be brimming with sort of like at any moment they could blow up at each other, either or, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know offset that uh, Dern, Dern found out that Walter Matthau had been paid $350,000 for, for this part, and Dern got 35000 so and and he knew he found he found out what Mattel was being paid. So again, that that could have had a little little bit of edginess to it. I know Dern's Dern. I, I, I believe he mentioned that either in interviews or in an autobiography or something. So oh, Bruce, it, Bruce, Bruce! Yeah. Don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, <laughs> Walter's fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but no, what what a film! It's it's so good. If you like police procedural um, and you've not seen Laughing Policeman, it's it's one of the best of its type. I think it's just so well directed, so well acted. It does dare to go down these loose ends, and you can sense the producers sort of tearing their hair out and saying, "Look, we we've got we've got we've got." Three pages of script here that that don't that don't lead anywhere, and Rosenberg sort of saying no, they're they're essential to the, the mood. You know, we need to keep that in, and uh, fortunately they did, and the film's all the better for it. It could have been so tedious to do that, and he he keeps it really lively and really exciting. You know, so even when we are going off down one of these loose ends, it works. You know, you you're riveted. I mean, it does. It does have the um, the nature of the film. Does have the uh, have the sort of like the, the 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 plot reveal, I guess, coming fairly late in the movie. You know, yeah. it's it's, a, it's well over halfway of the movie way before you get. Oh, this is what it's about. Yeah. So I yeah. think that probably. I mean, I think if you like your crime films, fairly pacey and fairly clear on where where the story is going, you don't get any of that yeah. for about fifty minutes in. The thing, the thing that Matthau said about Charlie Varick actually does apply to this film. Yeah, I think so. 
I think about 50 minutes in, you're thinking, well, what are they doing? They just yeah. seem to be doing nothing at the moment. Yeah. And then suddenly the plot reveals itself through through the investigation. And you think, okay, well, this 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 is the guy. This is the guy they're trying to catch. This is the this is the the person responsible, and they, and they go for it. But it's, it it did feel a little bit late for me. Yeah, but I think I think the way that works though is it's one of those films that two or three hours later, you're still sort of mulling it over in your head, and you're sort of making connections, and you're thinking, oh yeah, that movie I watched this afternoon. I can sort of, it's starting, it's still stayed with me and it's starting mm. to make a bit of sense. It's starting to percolate a little bit. You know, that doesn't happen while you're watching it. It happens later on the same day, you know. Mm. And I think that's that's a sign of a very rich and very successful film. Yeah, I think it definitely creates that world. I think it's one of those interesting ones where you look at it from modern eyes and it's like the depiction of the police is a very different way it would be depicted today, for instance, you know. I mean, literally, like, it's a horrible massacre. But as soon as they find out there's a cop on board, suddenly the whole department's involved in the investigation. Yeah, yeah. It's like one of our own, you know. It's like, I don't care. You know, and then the police brutality, there's, like, casual police brutality of beating up suspects and things like that to get um, information out of them. Goes on willy-nilly. It's not, it's not a good 21st century depiction of police, really. No, no. Other, other, other elements we've got in there, there's an absolutely fantastic sort of uh, discordant, jazzy score by Charles Fox, which even if you don't like the movie, if you, if you love your sort of 70s jazz, it's, it's just fantastic and um, quite daring as well in, in that it's not easy listening. You know, it's, uh, it's harsh and it's, it's for people who like their jazz to be out there, you know, and, uh, but it works for the film. It fits the tone of the film. Uh, we've, got to, we've got Anthony Zerby uh, playing one of his great slimy characters in this, you know, the sort of thing he's specialised in. And I, as, as a big fan of William, William Friedkin's uh, Cruising, you get a sort of little mini version of cruising towards the end here, you know, with sort of visits to, to gay bars and so on. And and they they seem to be done. Um, I, I don't know if they did the same thing as, as Friedkin with cruising and actually um, film in, in the genuine clubs with with sort of genuine punters, but it, it, it certainly has that feel. Yeah. It looks as though you're looking at people that are genuinely on the scene, the way they're dressed and the way they sort of sneer at the camera and so on. I mean, it definitely fed into that San Francisco vibe, didn't it? Yeah. You yeah. know, it was just like San Francisco, hate Ashbury, you know, free love. And even even talk about the, the, the homosexuality thing. It's not a crime, goddammit, you know, yeah. those kind of things. You know, it's, it's no longer a crime, goddammit, you know. So, you know, they, they, they're struggling with their own... Uh, ideas on homosexuality in that and, and yeah. acknowledge it in the script as well yeah i think as, as far as walter matow goes in the film it's this isn't as showy a part as um, as charlie varick or or taking a pattern one two three but in in its own quiet way and in his own quiet way i, I think it's a, another blistering performance yeah i definitely i mean it, it, it kind of hints at a world beyond beyond his job but only hints at it. It gives you enough to say that actually his wife, his kids, they are secondary to his pursuit of this this criminal in this yeah, in this job. Yeah. You get this sense that um Matthau's character is someone who who doesn't have a lot of closeness with other people and and uh, doesn't sort of get on with people in general, but he's obviously very close to this partner who's died in this massacre. And it's almost like a personal drive that he's got to investigate this case and got to investigate why. And again, it's almost as though it's it's similar to Charlie Varick in a way, in that he almost stumbles in in this committed drive to find out what's happened to his partner. He almost stumbles into this bigger crime, you know, this this whole bigger sort of thing. So, yeah, I, th- I think two very different films there and Matthau playing very different characters. But I think there is this this sort of connection in the plots in that sense. Yeah, no, definitely. I, mean, I think guilt also drives that character in, in The Laughing Policeman a lot as well. I mean, um, yeah. you know, even from the start, he gets the inkling that he's to blame for this. Yeah. And, and that only gets reinforced as it goes along. So, yes, yeah, so we've done fairly two fairly, fairly hard-boiled crime films in 73 and then in 74 he does slightly less hard-boiled 
a bit more fun, I guess, dare I say. More more audience-friendly. Yeah. Definitely more audience-friendly. Um, with the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, um, which has now been remade twice <laughs> since yeah. then. So obviously a very successful movie. Uh, it was remade twice. Um, it's had references far and wide, uh, from Beastie Boys songs to uh, Reservoir Dogs and Tarantino actively lifting the uh, the idea of naming all his um, characters after colours, um, yeah. which does it here in this movie. But it's about a New York subway train that's hijacked by a, a team of hijackers head, headed up by Robert Shaw, a.k.a. Mr. Blue, uh, who said they're going to execute 18 passengers unless their demands are met. And Walter Matthau plays the transit police chief who is caught in the middle of it all. Yeah, it's, it's great. And Matthau's a really good fit for this because you do get the sense of him as a real working Joe. And, mm. and again, again, like like Laughing Policeman, we're, we're, we're watching the, the whole uh, sort of everyday workings of the, the, the sort of subway network as part of the film, you know. Yeah. And, and we're not just seeing Matthau, but we're seeing all the people employed around him and we're seeing people in, in other sort of hubs around, uh, around the network. And they're just sort of working stiff, you know. They they and they're getting on with their day. And you you get okay, he's the transit cop working for for the line. But you do get the sense that um, day by day he's 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 doing the equivalent of directing traffic pretty much. And uh, um, and and then suddenly everything sort of blows up in his face, and he's got to deal with this major major crisis. Yeah, I think one of my favourite moments in the movie is like the depiction of sort of like the characters in that in that in that um, operating room. With yeah. The uh, you've got the guy who's in charge of the trains, and he just talks about these trains. It's, his world revolves around making sure these trains get here on time. This is the thing. Yeah, each person's got their own little world, and 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 they almost don't want to overlap. You know. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, with the fact that these kidnappers these hijackers have taken a train and are about to kill people it's almost secondary to the guy who's running the trains because he just wants to get his trains back on time and he's angry at them and he's like and it, it bubbles all the way through the movie this this yeah, character who's angry at these criminals there's more tension more tension there than there almost is in in what's happening with with the the the, the guns on the train you know absolutely but i mean it's, it just shows that wonderful world where Walter Matto, yes he's an everyday joe but he has the he has the ability to look beyond his job and look at the whole whereas the other character doesn't and and only just there's a moment where Walter Matto loses his temper with that character and he doesn't lose his temper very often in the movie at all Walter Matto. and when he does it's because he's seen the whole world and this guy's just seen his little role in it. And his little role means people might die unless, you know, it's, it's great. It's so it's so believable. You, mm, you, can, very much you so. know, I mean, any, anyone who sort of works in an office environment or, or any, anything like this situation here, you know, in, in traffic or whatever can, can identify with that because, okay, we, in, in, in our everyday jobs, we might not be dealing with, with, with um, people holding hostages and threatening to murder people, but um, you, you do get these conflicts in, in, in a work situation. And, and it's that, that I think this film makes believable. The fancy Hollywood plot is, is great as well, but it's rooted in this sense of reality and this sense of uh, conflict at work. And uh, that's a, a lovely contrast to what's happening on, on board the train. There's a sort of sense of conflict between the, uh, the, the, the gang as well. Interestingly, we, we don't find out much about the gang. And I think Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs was clearly looking at Pelham, not just in the sense of taking the idea of the, the colour-coded names, but I think he he almost gives us, in Reservoir Dogs, a sense of what the, the putting together of the gang in Taking of Pelham 123 must have been like, that they they clearly don't know each other all that well. There's clearly a lot of stress there. There's clearly loose cannons there. There's people with different levels of experience in, in different areas of crime. And um, it's like they've been thrown together for this one job. And Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs sort of took that and ran with it and made that into what his film was about. But in Taking of Pelham 123, and I think this, is, this, this would have been sort of the convention at the time, 
it's very nice because there's this whole layer sort of underneath the film that we're not being told about why is this crime happening? What, who, who is this gang? And we're sort of left to fill in a lot of the blanks. And I think that it's, it's, it's through the conflict that we find out more about them. Mm, and definitely, and also the performances as well. Oh, I mean, you, you know, Robert Shaw as the, the sort of like clinical um, Mr. Blue in this is just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fantastic. I mean, his his next film after this was Jaws, yeah. and 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 he he couldn't be playing a more different character. Yeah. You know, it's uh, um, yeah, just so cold and ruthless and. Um, very, very matter of fact, and very when when he's when he's on the phone to uh, staff at the, uh, at the 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 sort of central hub of the subway, it's all very terse and very clipped, and you know I'll give you the instructions sort of thing. Listen to me, do what I say. No, brilliant performance, and and again must have been a difficult part to play because when when you're delivering that type of clipped direct dialogue there's not a lot to play with there for an actor and he he nails it yeah and also you've got nothing to play off either because no, no. you know you're not like you sat up as it was a mat you know having a duologue you know you are talking you're at the into end of a, a phone. exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. you end of a yeah. of a phone and, and Walter matters on soundstage four or something like that yeah. regarding yeah. his stuff the, the director, Joseph Sargent, and his editors um, handle that really well. I think they they give the audience a sense of a conversation, even, even if the actors aren't, haven't actually got each other to play off. We get the sense that, that the characters are playing off each other. Um, mention of Joseph Sargent there. He's certainly no, um, uh, no Don Siegel and not even a Stuart Rosenberg. He's very much a sort of working stiff, you know, a sort of director for hire. Looking at his other credits, he... He did stuff like Golden Girl, the Karen Carpenter story, Jaws the Revenge, our big favourite, you know. So, so yeah, um, taking a Pelham 123 is, is just a sort of assignment. You know, he's a gun for hire, come on board. And it's far and away the best thing he ever did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... He, he directs it like a Don Siegel, like yeah, someone yeah. Who's, who's in it because he's interested in it. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a verve and the creation of tension in this movie is just fantastic. Um, I think maybe his 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 direction is not just a, like a, a subpar Don Siegel. I think Don Siegel would probably... I don't think Don Siegel could have directed this movie. No, in no. the way in the way it plays out, I think it's it's, it's I think he'd make more, he'd make too much of it in in, in some ways. Um, the bare bones of this is enough, I think. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. It is. It's another lean, very, very sort of focused movie. And uh, it plays like like a journey. You know, you, you could easily make a pun about how it sort of moves along the track sort of thing or, or some kind of railway related gag, because uh, it really does play like a sort of rail journey, you know, and uh, um, it moves at that sort of speed. Yeah, the, the interplay between characters is brilliant. There's there's a third batch of characters we've not mentioned yet, and that's the hostages. And how good are they as an ensemble? This is this loads of great little like little little people in this movie, I guess, smaller characters yeah. that just stand out really well. It's very well cast. What's interesting about that and films of that era that you don't get nowadays, and I think William Goldman. Uh, amongst others, has suggested that it may have been with the rise of actors like Dustin Hoffman that that sort of thing started moving out of movies, where people like Dustin Hoffman or Tom Cruise or somebody like that suddenly realised they got a bit of power and they looked at the script and they'd see a line, an absolute zinger of a line that that the um, a sort of street vendor or a cleaner or someone would have, and if you're Tom Cruise, you've got the power to say that's a great line. My character has to say that. Mm. And what you've got here in Taking a Pelham One Two Three is, yeah, actors in these little bit parts. They might they might only get one or two lines in the entire movie, but they're great lines. They're memorable lines, and it's brilliant dialogue, and it really helps to drive the movie along. And it would have been easy for someone like Walter Matthau to say, "Hey, I want all the good lines," but cinema wasn't like that then. No, I mean you get you get like I mean Jerry Stiller's in this um, years before I guess people knowing him 
for, for numerous comedy roles. And, yeah. But here, he, he he's just playing a not, uh, the second in command, I guess, to, to Mattel's character. Yeah. Um, and, and again, he's great. Again, he's not in it that much. Occasionally, he'll crop, he'll crop up. And he takes over on the mic when Walter Matto inevitably uh, heads down for the showdown with uh, Robert Shaw's character. And he and he, he's great, you know. <laughs> it's just like, just takes over brilliantly. Uh, Hector Alonso was Mr. Grey, the sort of like... The 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 high the, the the kidnapper the hijacker who is um probably closer to the edge than, than he's, the others. He's, he's he's the unstable guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Crazy one. He's and and guy. but great with it. You know, he's he's really memorable. As 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 crazy performances go, I I I'd say he's he's up to Andy Robinson in in uh, Dirty Harry level. You know. At the very least. Well, again, Tarantino has sort of borrowed specifically from that character, I think, in in Reservoir Dogs. Um, I think Steve Buscemi's character in Reservoir Dogs has got a direct lineage from uh, from Hector there. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. If you're a great sort of like hijack crime film fan, this is one of the, the, the grade A ones. But if you're a train fan, you know, if you're a subway buff, you know, if you this is this is this is great for you as well because you like you say you do see the inner workings of a 1970s New York subway train system. Yeah, and and again, like laughing policemen, you're seeing everyday Joes at work and you're seeing it done right. You're seeing what actually happens. Yeah. We've not even mentioned the mayor either. Oh, Lee no, Wallace no. is the mayor. He's fantastic. <laughs> Lee Wallace and Tony Roberts is the mayor and the deputy mayor discussing how they're going to handle this situation. Yeah, know? they've got their they've got their their own little movie going on. Absolutely, really, you know? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is almost like a little side movie where they're, they're how they're going to handle it, you know. And it's a great line. I think, I think it's his wife, uh, the mayor's wife, just says, you know, pay the money. You know, at least you're going to get 18 guaranteed votes next time <laughs> round, which is just a great line. Yeah, and and again, that's that's just about her only line in the film, and again, it's, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a killer. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. it's brilliant. But but Robert Shaw, I think we need to talk about a little more because because he is just the he, you describe actors as as being the heart and soul of a movie, and I he sort of is here, but you can't use the words heart and soul about this character. I don't think. No. But he is—he is the core of this, you know. He's—he's um, he's very much what everything revolves around, and uh, just absolutely ruthless. But there is a sense of uh, there's a sense of a human being in there as well. Again, he's—he's he's just a working stiff doing a job, really. I guess you know, and and uh, um, there is that parallel between what the gang are doing and the tensions between the gang and what's happening in the subway stations and in the in the control rooms. Mm. Um, I, I, I think that the two the two sets of characters there do do sort of rub off each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was, he was doing. I mean, Robert Shaw was doing well in those early seventies. He'd suddenly had like a resurgence in his career, hadn't he? Um, particularly yeah. film career. You know, he'd been in the Sting the previous year, which was a huge hit, and and then he, he cropped up in this in the I guess cold lead. I guess you call it back in the day. He'd, he'd also he'd also though just done a, a voiceover in Golden Voyage of Sinbad, so oh, okay. uh, so his career was a, a little bit you know sometimes he'd get the good roles, sometimes it'd be you know can you come in and do this for a day sort of thing. So uh, well, we, we, I think we we showed a documentary about him, didn't we, at um, Fantastic a few years yeah, ago, yeah, and uh, one of our festivals, and he. Um, he basically was a, he, he was a worker, you know, he liked to work and yeah. he liked to work when he wasn't working. He'd like to go back to Ireland and, and, and sit on his farm, you know, and yeah. drink yeah. in the local pub. Yeah. So I think he took money, he took jobs with, with regards to what the money was, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you get the sense with the character that he plays here, Mr. Blue, that he's going to go off and do that. You know, that after after he's finished this job and when they've got their million dollars or whatever they, the, the ransom is they're asking for, He's going to go off somewhere and just settle down and relax. And, and you, you sense that Shaw maybe connects with this guy a little bit. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, and, and the movie connected with audiences, it was a big hit. And it's, like I said, we've been remade twice. Is it once as a TV movie in the late nineties, uh, and then yeah, we've got uh, Ed, Edward Edward James Olmos in that, who's who's a who's a good fit for for this character, I would say, and was very big at the. He's sort of forgotten a little bit now, but very very big around the sort of turn of the century. Yeah. And uh, Vincent D'Onofrio in the Robert Shaw part, and then of course the biggie, the Tony Scott version. Yeah. 
Uh, I've not, not seen either of these versions. Tony Scott and um, obviously directed Denzel Washington and John Travolta in, in the two roles, which, I don't know, it doesn't feel like a good fit to me. No, no. Uh, I, ironically, ironically, it feels like they feel like a better fit the other way around. I'd say so, yeah. You know, Denzel is uh, Robert Shaw and John Travolta that, that, is... That would work better than I think it does. Um, the thing is, Den- Denzel's Mr. Nice Guy. And again, he's, it's, it's probably a case of actor's clout there. You know, it's probably a case of him coming in because Tony Scott and Denzel were a sort of partnership at the time. They were doing a lot of films together. And so when when this when this remake came up, you know, he'd have been a shoe in for casting. And it may well have been that he was offered the choice of roles, you know, and... Uh, and and you can imagine Denzel saying, "Well, it's obvious. I'll 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 take the good guy," you know. But uh, yeah, that's interesting, Adam. The switching those parts around might have been might have might have made it better than it was, and might have made it a little bit more sort of unexpected and and kept you on your toes a bit more. But uh, it plays out as you'd sort of expect a remake to do. It's 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 it's, it's a good Tony Scott film, but it's uh, it's it's unnecessary. We've seen this film done right, you know, and uh, uh, we we don't really need one remake. Never mind two. But uh, there you go. So uh, and, and that was it. I mean, <laughs> he did his three three little stint doing crime movies, and then uh, had a huge hit with Bad News Bears in '76, and then yeah, kind of. Yeah. Went yeah. back to doing other, doing yeah. light comedy type stuff and roles and musicals. Well, he, he won his Oscar for Koch in '71 and then won again for the Sunshine Boys in '75. And these films all fall in between that. Now, the other film that falls in between those those two Oscars is uh, the Billy Wilder film, The Front Page. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I would say to people, if you're listening to this podcast and if you want to go out and get these three films and watch them back to back. They make a great all-nighter, you know. And I would say, fin- finish off with the front page because that's a sort of crime film, even though it's it's leaning back towards the um, the, the sort of Matthew Billy Wilder comedies. It's got crime elements in it, and it's 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 a lovely sort of dessert to the the sort of meaty main courses that you get in in these three films. So I think it's a nice way to sort of finish off. Uh, with with the front page, but uh, but these three sort of stand alone as a group. I think I think they do they do sort of have crossover elements. They are also very different as well. So there is that sense of connection, but there's that sense of distance too. And I think that makes them a really interesting little batch of films. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Daryl. That's us taking in three Walter Matai movies. Um, I'm sure we'll be able to come back and hit... Uh, there must be other filmmakers out there, other actors, actresses, filmmakers that have had these little little blip runs where they have little things. Maybe, we should, maybe that's a, an area we can explore in future podcasts. For sure, yeah, yeah. Cool. Lovely. Thank you very much. Uh, again, I want to thank the BFI and Quad for supporting these podcasts. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.